It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who con who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who Christ Jesus who died more than that. Uh, who was raised to life is at, is at the right hands of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger of so danger or sword as it as is written for for your sake we face death all day long. We are we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height or depth nor depths nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ, Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. That was my Mother's Day gift as my son. <laughs> you may be seated. Um, as Johnny said, it's Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. Um, yes, I have been thinking a lot about... Um, being a parent lately, obviously, being the season. Um, but I feel like this year has been an interesting one for me as a parent. My husband, John, and I um, have been parents now for officially 14 years, um, as of like a week ago, um, when our oldest son turned 14. And that's a big chunk of my life. Uh, and so while we're not new to parenting, um, if you're a parent, that you know that like parenting is not a static enterprise, right? Uh, every, every phase, every year brings like a new set of challenges as a parent because even though you've been parenting for a while, you've never parented a 14-year-old like I haven't. So it's totally new. It's always changing. So as I said, this year has been particularly interesting because this is, my kids are starting to become the ages that I remember being. Like, of course, I kind of remember being a nine-year-old, but I really remember being a 14-year-old. Um, and in fact, this is probably going to freak a lot of you out because it, in fact, freaked myself out and my husband out when we were talking about it on our walk recently. But he and I met when, at the same age that our son just turned. I know. <laughs> it's it's, it's very hard to swallow. So um, I don't know how well all of you remember being the ages of 13 and 14, but I remember it pretty vividly and not all for good reasons. Um, my dad was in the Air Force, and so we moved around quite a bit. Um, and up until that point of being 13, 14, it really hadn't presented much of a problem. Like I was okay with changing schools and, you know, jumping into new activities, meeting new people, all that sort of thing. I was a pretty happy kid. Um, and then when my dad decided to retire from the Air Force and just work a regular job, and they settled into the city um, that would become their home when they've lived there for the past 25 years, that all changed. Like, record scratch, like, all for the worse. And the reason was middle school. <laughs> so all the tactics that had worked previously for me, just sort of like showing up, being myself, like, 
show yourself friendly, whatever. I don't There's some phrase my mom always used to quote at me, and it, I don't think it is the Bible. I think it's more like Garrison Keeler or something like, show yourself friendly and you will have friends or something. Anyway, whatever. Uh, yeah, it, it didn't work anymore because of middle school. Um, and so it was very rough for me. It was a really hard time. I hope that wasn't the case for you. I hope your middle school experience was very lovely. But I related very much to uh, the John Mulaney bit about like how mi mean kids can make fun of you in a very accurate way. You know, like they find the one thing about you that you don't want anyone else to know and like they go hard right there. That was me. That was my experience. So now my kids are starting to experience that exact same hurt. It's all, it's all coming back. Um, the things that they tell me they experience, sort of the insults and the bullying, or even just the whole, like, you breathe slightly different than the mainstream crowd, and, like, you're inviting all the ridicule. Like, yep, been there, experienced that. Um, and I don't know if they fully believe me, because do you ever really fully believe your parents when they tell you that, I've been there too? No, you don't. But parenting my kids through these moments where I'm saying to, th them, to, th uh, saying to them things that I'm sure my parents said to me um, when I was their age, and I don't, I don't even know if they were because I wasn't listening, right? <laughs> but I'm saying things to them like, I know this sucks. Like, I know this is super painful. Um, I know how, how hard this time is for you. And I know how it seems like it's just lasting for an eternity because this is your world right now. This is your every day. And I know it seems like these other kids are like the arbiters of cool, um, but trust me, they're not. They're just as you know, insecure as everyone else. They're just as afraid. And so it's this balance of listening and empathizing, but also like knowing when the right time to speak truth is, right? And so I've been through it myself. I know how awful it, it is to live it, but I've also come out on the other side, and so I know it doesn't last forever. But it's so hard. I was telling people earlier today, I was saying it's so hard because unlike any other stage of parenting, um, I can't really do much to fix their problems. Like, of course, I advocate for them at school when that's necessary, um, but I can't really go in there and fix their problems. I can just listen and love um, and pray for them and speak truth to them. But I can't walk into their classrooms and, you know, make these kids be nice to them as much as I would love to do that. I wish I had that power. But it's been, it's been a frustrating and a pretty heartbreaking season, honestly. But in other ways, as I've been reflecting on it um, these past couple of months, it's actually been a really beautiful season at the same time. And it's because, I think, these are the moments that really determine our relationship right, as a parent and a child. Because even though I can't solve their problems for them, the more important thing that they're learning is that they know that they can come to me in the full depth of their emotions, knowing that it's safe and secure to do so. And that I will listen and I will empathize, speak out of my own experience, and remind them of the truth and offer hope. Um, I've been reflecting on this metaphor of God as divine parent um, for a while now, not just because it's Mother's Day, although that works. Um, and I say parent, um, and not just father or mother, um, because the Bible includes both uh, maternal and paternal uh, images of God. Uh, Johnny used one earlier. 
Psalm 103 says, as a father has compassion for his children, so the Lord has compassion for those who fear him. But Jesus himself refers to him, as Johnny said earlier, in Luke 13, he compares his relationship to Israel um, uh, as that of a mother hen to her chicks. He says, how often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And so in both paternal and maternal imagery, Scripture invites us to view our Trinitarian God as a divine parent. And it's a powerful metaphor because it's a relationship that whether it's been good or bad for us, whether they were absent or present, we all have experience with. It's not like a neutral thing. It affects us very deeply. It's a relationship that has a huge impact on how we're formed. If you've been through therapy, you know this, right? Tell me what it was like. What's your relationship with your parents like? And metaphors themselves aren't just sort of like pretty poetic dressing. Um, they're very powerful tools that actually drive our understanding of a thing. They determine, actually, more than we give them credit for determining. Uh, there is a, an example of this. Uh, Stanford did this study once um, where they gave um, a group of people, half of participants were given an article about crime in a fictional city, and half of those people were given a version of this article that described the crime as a beast preying on the city. And then in another version of this article, they gave the other half of the people um, uh, this article that described crime as a virus infecting the city. And then the two different groups were asked to present solutions to this crime problem in this fictional city. And those with the beast version offered more punitive solutions like longer jail time, so consequences, steeper consequences. And then those who had the virus version of the article, uh, they sought more reformative measures that attack sort of the, the root of the problems. And so interestingly, just, using, just thinking about the different metaphors alone, those showed a, a, actually a greater discrepancy than like even the political parties of those that were in the group. So metaphors are hugely influential. And scripture uses the metaphor of father and mother to characterize how we view God. Um, God in this metaphor analogy being the target domain that's in like metaphor language, metaphor study in order to emphasize God's benevolence, his care, and his deep self-sacrificing love. Ideally, the type of love that we receive from our earthly parents. There is no better, more perfect love than this. And yet, our own personal experience with our earthly parents, the source domain, if you are a metaphor nerd, it will impact our understanding of God because, unfortunately, metaphors, as powerful as they are, they are limited in their capacity. They kind of max out really fast when they're used for big, divine, you know, infinite things like God, divine beings, right? And earthly parents, the problem with them, unfortunately, is that even if they are or were the best possible ones ever to live, they will fail right? Because, spoiler alert, they're human. They're going to let you down. The Lord knows I am pretty darn far from being a perfect parent. I fail my kids many times, and I'm destined to do so again. 
but just one of the many, many ways that we have let our experience of our earthly parents um, impact our understanding of God in a not-so-helpful way is this idea that the closeness of our relationship is contingent on our perfection. Certainly in unhealthy child-parent relationships, we see this, but even in relatively healthy ones, we see this. There can still exist this hesitation or this reluctance on the part of children um, to let the parent in on their moment of failure or weakness or just, you know, disappointment. I have several close friends who are the younger sibling of a more troubled child, like their older sibling has just had more problems, and they've all shared how, as a kid, in response to this, they just sort of instinctually decided to, you know, I'm going to be the best kid I can possibly be. My parents have enough going on with my older brother or sister, and so I've got to be perfect. I've got to make myself as easy and compliant as possible because they're just, they have, they're struggling with their other sibling. Or they sense that their parents had, you know, problems of their own, whether they had troubled marriages um, or they were single parents. And so their response was, whether they consciously thought about it at the time or not, like, I can't bother them with my problems. Like, they've got enough going on. I certainly don't need to add to that, to that problem with all of my failures. They've got enough disappointment. Or it could be your experience, which is more like mine, where you felt like any failure on your part, like any screw-up, would just be devastating to your parents. It would change their view of you forever, and it would cut you off relationally, and so just keep it all close to the vest. Um, I, I personally feared that, that you know, dreaded cliche line, like, I'm not mad, I'm just disappointed, <laughs> you know, that parent line. It reminded me of that, that meme I saw uh, a while back where some, someone was like, a guy, I cut off a guy in traffic, and when he pulled around me, rather than giving me the middle finger, he gave me a thumbs down, <laughs> and that hurt worse. <laughs> and I was like, that's me. Like, with my parents, like, please yell at me, ground me, but don't tell me I've let you down. Don't tell me I've disappointed you. Like, I can't handle that. Like, hopefully this was not your experience. Hopefully you all had wonderful, healthy relationships with your parents um, that you could bring anything to you without fear of disappointment or rejection. But I know it is that way for so many of us, um, that fear or reluctance um, that limited our relationship with our parents. And consequently, Consequently, we've let that understanding seep into our understanding of God. A common struggle for many of us um, is feeling close to God. And if we were pressed to give an answer, like, why do you struggle feeling close with God? What, what's the cause for that? What's the culprit? We might be tempted to give that Sunday school answer, like, well, um, it's probably our sin. It's probably me. I've messed up yet again. God's annoyed. He's sitting up there thinking, like, come back when you've got yourself worked out, or when you've got yourself in order. He knows that I know I ought to do better, and I can't bother him about this. How could he feel anything but frustration with me? I've thought that. Anyone else? This is their view of God. I knew the rules. I broke them. I don't deserve to be admitted back in until I can prove that I can do better. 
Or we might offer the reason that we don't feel close because we uh, harbor doubts. We think our relationship with God is going well when we're performing as we ought to perform, both in terms of our behavior, but even in terms of our theology. Um, when we feel sure about everything, when we feel like we've got all our theological ducks in a row, when our circumstances make sense to us, and we have no cause to ask God, like, where are you? Why is this happening? But the irony of that, though, is that it's actually in those moments of weakness, probably the moment that we very least suspect, when we're doubting or we're owning up to our sin, confessing, that is actually when we're nearest to Jesus. The writer of Hebrews reminds us that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Did you catch that? It's actually our weaknesses and Christ's solidarity with us in that, in our weaknesses, that should actually embolden us to approach the throne. And what type of throne is that? Not a throne of judgment, not a throne of condemnation, but a throne of grace. That's what's offered to us in weakness. I love how Henry Nouwen puts it. He says, It is in the confession of our brokenness that the real strength of new and everlasting life can be affirmed and be made visible. We have such a hard time holding these things in tension, don't we? Like, how can this possibly be? It's like a child who can't, doesn't really fully trust that confessing a moment of failure to a parent could actually result in a moment of love and security. We struggle to understand that in our moments of weakness and vulnerability, those are the moments where our relationship with God comes alive. That's where the magic happens. That's when Jesus can meet us most closely. Much like my current stage of parenting my kids, I hate the struggles that they're going through. They suck. I wish they weren't happening. But my hope and prayer is that in these moments, these middle school crises, this is where our relationship is really going to take off in a way that it hasn't before. Like a fun day at Disney World is wonderful and lovely, like as a, a great family day, of course. But I suspect that it's actually a conversation in the car on a Tuesday afternoon where I'm listening as they bring their full selves to me. That's the stuff. That's when our relationship really takes off. Honestly, it's really the test of whether we have a relationship, like, at all. Because anyone can take, you know, my kids to a theme park for the day and have a good time. Although, that may, that's a terrible example. Theme parks are, like, somebody's version of hell, so that's a bad example. <laughs> but anyone can, like, you know, take my kids out for ice cream, and it's, you know, it's nice, whatever. But who do my kids bring their problems to? Like, that's the true test of our relationship. Interestingly, for all their failures, and they had many, the writers of the Old Testament scriptures 
actually had no problem holding this tension. This understanding that you could show up boldly before God with both your complaints and your confessions, and God is perfectly fine with that. In fact, this is part of the covenantal deal that they signed up for, in fact. We see this all over the Old Testament, from Jacob to Moses, Abraham, but we see this really clearly in the book of Psalms, which is a book I think that in the Western church we have, um, we're very guilty of underutilizing to our detriment, I think. Think about it. Like, when was the last time you heard a sermon on the Psalms? It's been a minute. And not just miss you. Like, I'm just talking about the traditional, I don't know, Western Protestant church. Um, I think part of the reason is genre. You know, it's just kind of easier to talk about a narrative or a letter, one of Paul's letters or something. But I think also it's because, like, the Psalms are kind of dangerous, right? Like, they're kind of emotional. They're, they're raw. They can be kind of, like, sassy and irreverent. But this is actually what makes them so helpful. Scholars are divided about the context in which the Psalms were written. Um, they're sort of like by tradition associated with David, but they don't really know because they don't really reveal a lot about in, in the Psalms themselves. They don't tell us uh, a lot about where they were written and what time. But one proposal um, is that many of the Psalms sort of reflect this uh, a domestic ritual of rehabilitation uh, led in the home uh, by lay leaders in the community. So in other words, these were written by sort of like regular people, um, written and spoken in the context of the household. While the lack of their sort of historical markers can sort of be frustrating to scholars and historians who are desperate to sort of pinpoint where they are, when were they written, it's actually that laser focus um, on the interior life, stripped of all those helpful details, that's actually what makes them incredibly relatable today. Uh, Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann explains, he says, the Psalms deal with those whose lives, for whatever reason, have disintegrated. They present human persons in situations of regression. When they are most vulnerable and hurt, most ecstatic and naive joy, most sensitized to life, driven to the extremities of life and faith, faith, when all the covers of modern rationality have disappeared or become dysfunctional. Basically, it's a human experience, right? The highs and the lows, you covered it all. And these writers, whoever they were, they saw no issue with saying in one breath, my soul is in anguish. How long, O oh Lord? How long? Or making a raw confession of sin, as in Psalm 51, against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. But also in the next breath saying, don't cast me from your presence. Sustain me. Give me what I need. Or proclaiming the truth. You listen to the cry of the afflicted. You are our helper. You are our rescuer. Things that look forward to the future, but also were grounded in their historical, uh, their collective historical history and experience. It wasn't sort of this pie in the sky optimism. 
They had been delivered out of the hands of the oppressors in Egypt. In fact, this is where their identity as a people was first formed. And so even in their pain, they can affirm this truth about their God. To cry out or lament or even accuse doesn't cancel out this expectation of hope and healing. Nor did they have to be docile or meek or mild about it, as you can sense. They're making demands on the basis of their closeness and intimacy of their relationship with their God. I'm so grateful that these scripture, the, the Psalms were included in our canon because they were literally living out those words in, in Hebrews, boldly approaching the throne of grace, knowing that they could do so without fear of rejection. On the contrary, uh, Walter Brueggemann, who I quoted earlier, he wrote, God is made available to the speaker of faith who dares to present himself or herself boldly to God. That's when he shows up. The passage for today, Romans 8, 31-39, it's the conclusion of a pretty complex argument that Paul has laid out throughout his this letter to the Romans. And so it's this kind of grand finale, this sort of like sweeping, rousing climax to this kind of big speech in a way. So it feels a bit awkward to kind of like come into the tail end of it without like a whole lot of context. It's like kind of walking into a, a party, like right in the middle of a toast, someone like hands you a champagne glass and you're like, what are we toasting? Um, it's kind of hard to get in the mood. But this is one of the most beautiful, most profound expressions of the gospel. And I felt it was sort of worthy of repetition as we think about this. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Things, by the way, which Paul had been enduring. No, in all these things, we are more than victorious through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. How can Paul proclaim this so boldly? Where does he ground this idea that we can proclaim hope and confidence and security that nothing can separate us from God's love in Jesus? Well, if we rewind a few verses earlier, we find that Paul's basis, again, is rooted in this parent-child metaphor. Rewind all the way back to the beginning of the chapter. He says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then he continues in verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear but you received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If we in fact suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. 
Um, I'll never forget the time when I actually heard the word Abba spoken like for real, like in a real context. Um, it was one of my son's best friends at the time and they were in a class together and he was an Orthodox Jew. Um, and it was really sweet because we were waiting. He thought his dad had forgotten to pick him up. Um, and when he came into the room, he exclaimed, Abba! And I just had never heard it really used outside of scripture. And I'll never forget the relief and the tenderness um, in that word. It was so beautiful. And it really changed the way I heard it from then on. Missio, in Christ, we are his beloved sons and daughters. As Paul tells us, it's in our moments of childlike helplessness, our weakest moments, our most vulnerable moments, when we cry, help, that's when our identity in Christ is most assured. And so we don't have to fear rejection or disappointment. Like the writer to the Psalms, we can be bold, we can be real, we can bring our whole selves. Like the earthly parents we were all meant to have, we are safe and secure in the presence of Jesus. No matter how many times we screw it up, you know, how many no matter how many questions or doubts that we're harboring. So before we come to the table, let's take a moment to confess our brokenness and our need for grace, not out of shame, not out of condemnation, but as joint heirs, as testaments to this new and everlasting life, as Henry Nouwen wrote, as resurrection people. Amen? Amen. So take a moment, and when you're ready, you can come to the table.